Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT Thriller You have now entered the House of Mystery With your hosts Eric Shapiro David North Martino John Copenhaver And our warriors FM Riverside and 105 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and we've got Mr. Joe Goldberg here as my co-host today. I'm in the house, basking in the glow of my book release. Yeah, how's that going? It's okay. It's yeah. okay. I can always sell more. I always want more reviews. I always sell a lot more. I always want a lot more reviews. But I, I appreciate the, the, the readership and what I've gotten. It's, it's fun. It's Review, a good time. Reviews is a really hard thing. That's, that's the toughest, th- toughest thing to get because you can sell a lot. And a lot of, if it's not paid for, it's not, you know, net gallied out by, by agents. It's tough to get people to, to actually sit down and, and do a review. It's not, it's not a simple thing, but, uh, it yeah. helps a lot, you know, because just the, and even if they give you a bad review, it helps. Yeah. I, in fact, my uh, newsletter is out. For this month, that last section was basically reader reviews, and I sent out a, the ones that I sell directly, a piece of paper, pretty much says, you know, give me a review. You know, uh, does that have to be a lot of words? It could be okay or a thumbs up or just a star, but, you know, we yeah. we all read reviews. Yeah. So, well, you got to start going to people's houses. And- well, I tried that on Halloween. That didn't work. People ran. I came as an author. I came as you, and people slammed the door in my face. Yeah, I was like, oh, no, not him. <laughs> he's he's not a, he's not an author. We don't call him. I'm not an author. They just true crime, true crime. Run away. Yeah. yeah, it certainly is. Well, today we've got an author, and actually from um, you know one of my stomping grounds. Actually, Seattle was an area for me for a long time. Went to UW, did all that sort of stuff. Um, so let's bring in our our author today, and uh, he's got a new book called I believe it's called The Eunuch. Um, Charles H. Fisher. Thank you for being here. Happy to be here, Al. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Charles, what can I say? This is a, certainly the book strikes out. Uh, certainly something different. It's not what uh, you normally see in today's uh, thriller crime fiction world. It seems like what what led you down the road to write this book? Well, uh, for a time, I was a graduate student at Harvard Divinity School, and uh, not a very successful one, uh, and very poor. I lived in a uh, in one of the oldest boarding houses in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was like $22 a week. I had a hot plate, one room, bathroom down the hall. 
it was a you know a relatively miserable graduate student life. Uh, but I was taking a lot of interesting uh, classes, both at the uh, uh, school and at the university. But I had a neighbor, uh, a, a young woman, who was doing a PhD in Assyriology. And that meant she was learning all these dead languages like uh, Babylonian and Akkadian and Hebrew. And she was translating and studying ancient cuneiform texts from Mesopotamia. And through her, I became interested in the old culture of Babylon. And that was kind of the beginning at some point when I was uh, thinking about uh, what to write for my first novel. And I thought I might do something historical. I was thinking about different periods in history, and, and then I kind of ended up unsettling on ancient Babylon, in part because I knew this, my friend, her name is Jenny Myers, um, who was studying the seriology at uh, Harvard, uh, but also because of what that word Babylonian meant to me from my kind of Midwestern 20th century background. It was, it was like this image of decadence and power and luxury and corruption. And I thought there might be something there. Wow. I, I, I wonder. So let's get, first of all, let's talk about the premise of the book itself. Well, the premise of the book is, um, I'll, I'll give you my quick elevator pitch. Uh, the eunuch is an erotic tragedy based on forged translation of cuneiform tablets that were unearthed during the Iraq War of 2003. It's told from the point of view of a harem eunuch. His name is Nurgal, and he's the harem scribe of Nebuchadnezzar II's harem, uh, a harem that consists of over 300 wives, girlfriends, and concubines, and his job is to record the goings-on in the harem uh, in, this, in this Babylonian court. Uh, uh, another aspect of the story is Babylon at this time is preparing for a war, an invasion of Judah. Uh, this is actual historical fact. Um, and, and so uh, Nurgle is there on hand to observe all the events that lead up to this war. Um, and so that's the general kind of context for the story. So Charles did. Did the idea of the story come to you uh, first as a, I need to write something about Babylon, Babylon, uh, Babylonia, and, or did you, was there some historical facts that you said, this, there's a story in here, I need to piece these together somehow? Yeah, it was, it was a combination, a good question, a combination of a number of things. When I first started to write my ambitions as a novelist, I made the mistake of writing about myself. I, I get nauseous just thinking about it. Don't we all? Um, yeah. <laughs> And everything I wrote was just terrible, full of cliché, right? Because uh, I was just writing about what's it like to be a poor graduate student who has a terrible love life. I mean, it, it was just it was kind of pathetic. And the results were not very good. So what I was I was looking for some some sort of analog, um, a persona or a mask, where I could talk about some of those issues, but do it in a in a kind of a slant way. And so I hit upon this idea of a harem eunuch as a kind of alter ego for my, my miserable life as a loveless graduate student. Um, I, I should also add, I, I wanted to write, I had aspirations to write a comic novel, so I was looking for a, a premise that, that, that I could mine for laughs, dark laughs to be sure. And so the harem eunuch thing was there in place. And then when um, the United States invaded Iraq in March of 2003, that, that got my attention. And I was thinking, oh, you know, you never know the consequences 
of these things. It sounded like a good idea at the time, but often these wars have a habit of turning out badly. And so then, and then this idea of Babylon kind of shelled because then I could write about a powerful empire, an imperium, as it were, possibly on the decline, maybe not, who's about to launch a war. We have no idea what the consequences are going to be like. And so I said, well, I know Babylon invaded you know, from my years as a, you know, a Sunday school, school student studying the Bible. I knew that Babylon invaded uh, Judah in the 6th century BCE, and that you know went really badly for the Jews. It ended up in the Babylonian captivity. I said, okay, so I'm going to set my harem eunuch in the kingdom of Babylon, and, and it all kind of lined up, the eunuch, Babylon, harem. These are, were all like analogies for uh, my own situation, and then I didn't really have to write directly about myself. I could do it all kind of in code, and, and, and once I had that pre premise, I knew that I had something worth pursuing. Uh, but it took, you know, 10 years really to execute because it required a, a tremendous amount of research. And also, I didn't know how to write a novel. Thought I did, but I did not. And, and that took a lot of wor work to figure out all the various things that you need to know to write a novel and, you know, to have it kind of work out as a story. So it was a long process, but it was very engaging and something I enjoyed tremendously, uh, despite the fact that it took a long time to uh, accomplish. Well, Charles, you have a lot of things in there. I scribbled down for questions and notes. Um, yeah. Let's start with, I was first one was themes. You have, there are themes underneath this, obviously. There's the personal individual themes that were, that somebody can uh, see themselves in your characters, even though they're thousands of years old. But there's also universal themes of society that also apply to us, like the aging big empire. Yeah. Uh, so that 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 was your point, right? That's how you would put pieces together. Yeah, you're gonna have the you're gonna have the, the you're gonna have the particular and the universal, the individual and the uh, and the state, right? Uh, and, you know, and so and so being, you know, and uh, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm on the tail end of the baby boom, right? And so I was too young to, uh, you know, be drafted for Vietnam. But I certainly remember watching all that stuff on TV and then going through the 70s, kind of the aftermath, the hangover from Vietnam, right, with uh, uh, Watergate, uh, uh, you know, when we bugged out of Saigon, Saigon in 75. And those images of, of 1970s America were kind of imprinted on my mind. And so when uh, the United States... Uh, you know, got jacked up for war after 9-11. It was, a little, it was, you know, as Yogi Berra says, it was deja vu all over again. And I had a very skeptical take on uh, that war. And so so that was kind of going on. And then I had my own kind of, you know, penurious uh, existence as a minor academic, you know, essentially poor and powerless. And so, again, I was looking for a way to kind of talk about that in a way that would be more interesting um, and so hence the eunuch in this giant empire on the eve of making this disastrous international decision. And so that, so I was fueled both uh, as an individual trying to tell a very loose version of my own story, but within the larger kind of political and economic con context of uh, post 9-11 the United States. So did you have something you wanted to get across to a reader? Like when you were writing, were you writing it for the reader as well? Was there something you hoped that they would pick up from this? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I, initially, I wanted to write the novel that I wanted to read, the idea that I was writing for myself as a reader. Um, and there were a number of books that I have deeply loved 
um, over the years, you know, a handful of these. And I wanted to give myself as, a, as the reader of my novel, but also other readers that same experience that I had, for example, when, you know, I read I, Claudius by Robert Graves or Lolita by Nabokov. Uh, uh, or Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Um, I, I wanted to. I was dreaming big, obviously. And, you know, <laughs> I don't pretend to the genius of these books, but you know, I wanted to. I was swinging for the fences uh, to kind of create this reader experience. And in regards to like ideas or themes, um, uh, I didn't want to be over overtly political, although I knew that I had a hot political topic on my hand. Above all, I wanted to have a really good prose style, and I wanted it to be funny. I wanted it to be dark. I wanted it to be provocative. Um, and, uh, and, and I guess above all, kind of interesting. Um, and, and, of course, themes and ideas are there, but you know, every reader is going to take something different from that experience. I didn't want to be too didactic, right? I didn't want to preach. I wanted to have enough complexity complexity and ambiguity in the situation uh, to uh, open it up to multiple interpretations because the narrator of the novel is no innocent uh, you know flower either um, he may be a slave he may be powerless but he's got his own ego and his own will to power and his own agenda that he's working as well and uh, so I wanted to you know implicate him in the corruption as much as uh, you know the state uh, that he was and the king that he was writing about. What well, was that main character? You? Uh, well, well, sort of, but no. It was uh, he's a scribe. He's part of the scribal class, and and Babylon is uh, sixth century Babylon. It was on, was is on the tail end of this very long culture that be, began with Samaria and like you know the sixth century BCE. And these are the guys that you know built the first cities. Uh, invented writing. They weren't the only ones to invent writing. You had the Indus River Valley civilizations and the Mayans in South America and, of course, Egypt. Um, but they, in this area, they invented writing. They created this giant administrative, bureaucratic, scribal class. And I was writing about them, too. I was a very minor and insignificant part of that class. But nevertheless, I was, I was, I was there. And one of the things that kind of appalled me about Iraq was the total sign-off on that war by the so-called scribal classes of the U.S. Not all, but, but most of them. I'm thinking of the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the uh, uh, major um, outlets of journalism. And these are the, you know, the New York Times are the ones that published the Pentagon Papers, right? They were, and you had the Washington Post, of course, that uh, began the exposure of Nixon and Watergate. Uh, and again, I, I don't consider I, I consider myself kind of politically in the middle, even apolitical at times. I, I don't have a, a, a conservative or a progressive axe to grind, but I was kind of struck on how the establishment got behind Iraq, um, it, the scribal classes, as it were. Uh, and I, I think part of it was just the shock and horror after the atrocities of 9/11. Um, so the, the, that was in my mind, the, the ways that the intelligentsia, as it were, uh, could um, get on board and become complicit our foreign policy adventures abroad. Uh, so that was there, kind of. How do, how do you get in the mind or get behind um, the characters that you write? Yeah. How, do, how, does it, how, does it, you, how do you interact with your characters? How's that? Right. It's a good question. Um, so 
one of the ways I've thought about uh, so the, the novel's narrated. It's a first-person novel, right? And so anytime you write first-person, there are great opportunities, but there are also limitations and challenges, right? For example, you can't really ever you can't get in the mind of other characters. If you're writing from like a person omniscient point of view, and, and I'm thinking of another great, I'm thinking of a great historical novel, War and Peace by Tolstoy, right? Believe, believe it or not, that's considered a historical novel because he's writing, he's writing the novel in the 1860s and he's looking back at like 1804, 1805, he's looking back at his father and grandfather's generation. Well, he, he's, this is third person omniscience and you get into, you see the thoughts and the mind and the feelings of every character and there are dozens and dozens of characters in that novel. It's a great novel. Um, but when you write from fir first person, it's really this, it's this singular point of view and, you, and really the reader has only access to the narrator's consciousness, his or her thoughts and feelings about other people. So the first person narration is tremendously unreliable. He's going to purport to tell the truth and be objective, right? But, you know, he's got his own biases and his own, you know, political and individual axes to grind, right? They're going to color and shape his point of view of the world. So that so that's part of getting into that voice, a way to uh, dramatize that unreliability so that a, a reader who's paying attention can see the cracks, the slight cracks and the gaps in the narrative edifice. But the guy who's telling the story, the narrator, doesn't, doesn't see that. He thinks he's you know, given this... I'm giving you the unvarnished truth here, right? So you got to kind of figure out a way to, to to kind of project that kind of confidence, that ego, that egotism. I think there's a kind of an inherent narcissism uh, when we tell our own stories, right? Even when we're confessing to our our own sins, as it were, or confessing to our own faults and our own mistakes and weaknesses, even that can have a kind of agenda to it. So it's really kind of trying to figure out that. Now, as far as getting the voice. A lot of it is you, I began by borrowing and stealing the voices of other narrators that I really admired and aspired to emulate. And so you're, so, so I'm, I'm stealing from Nabokov, you know, I'm giving my really bad imitation of Nabokov, or I'm doing a, my kind of garage band version of John Updike or Philip Roth. So I think I'm imitating these guys, but I, I'm nowhere near uh, them. Uh, as writers, and so the thing is, if you you imitate someone badly, it's going to come off as your own voice. And so I did that long enough, and sooner or later, I kind of cobbled together uh, something that I thought was original. And um, you know, I mean, the novel's not perfect, and I and I could come up with criticisms of the book, but I think that the one of the most successful things about the eunuch is the voice of Nurgle, the narrator, and. Uh, I'm proud of that. But that took a while to kind of figure out. It's, you're like an actor. You're inhabiting a role. And it has to look real and feel real. I don't know if I, know if I answered your question or not. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. Yes. Well, let's go with that. You you inhabited the character, and actors, you know, they practice, they, they research. Just what were the layers of research that had to go into creating a fictional, historical fictional, 6,000-year-old right. story? Yeah, so I basically got the bibliography, um, put put together a bibliography, a reading list on Assyriology, right, on the cultures of Sumeria and Assyria, Babylon, etc. A lot of it's scholarly stuff, right? And, but I, I could only do it in translation. 
I, I have, I, I don't know Akkadian or Babylonian, right? So, and moreover, I could only do it in English. And so there's a tremendous amount of scholarly material on these cultures. Much of it's in German, much of it's in French. Uh, and so I was limited to just the English stuff, right? And uh, on that reading list, there were probably, you know, 25 books or so. And, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in all of those. I did, I, you know, I had to know the, the gods, the, you know, what the, who the gods were and what they did. I understand the entire kind of mythology of Mesopotamia. It's quite different than something you'd find in, in Greece or Rome. Not totally dissimilar, but, you know, the, the, the names are different. The language is different. I had to kind of get a hold of the, of the, of the names. The names are so strange. Uh, in this culture, Inkidu, Gilgamesh, um, just to name two of the most famous names in this literature. Well, I think that's the name of Joe's kids, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't. I guess I can't pronounce them. They just stay over there. Then I can't call. It'd be a good name for cats. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So and I, and I had to figure out, you know, what the religion was like, what the politics was like, all of that. And so it just—it's kind of like brick by brick, you 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 put it together. And um, the world build, I guess they call it world building. That didn't happen. That didn't happen overnight. That took a couple of years and some revision. And I would just continually add to it. The more that I learned, the more that I could add. Now it had to do it in a light way. It didn't have to. Be, I didn't want it to be too heavy-handed, but it, it had to be plausible. I, mean, I, I had to create the illusion or the veneer of historical accuracy. That, that, that required some work. I have to say that, so when you when you first were getting this an original idea, when you were first developing this, 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 this thought of doing a book like this, to now, to where you are now, and now that it's published, d did it turn out how you first envisioned it would? Yeah, it's a good question, yeah. So what was the vision? Yeah, you kind of have like this platonic ideal or some archetype in your head that you're always working for, and it's not fully articulated. It's was, it was more of a feeling, right? Um, it was an idea and it was a feeling, and I didn't know what it would look like when it was done. And I would say that I got really close to um, executing on, on the vision, uh, whatever its flaws are, and I'm sure there are a number of flaws in the book. Both like historically and maybe even for, and from like a, the point of view of art, but as far as my ideals as a reader, I got really close. I think I probably got like ninety five percent of it. What I what have I hoped it would be? Um, and I tell my writing students that when you're thinking about writing, it is swing for the fences, be ambitious, dream big. You don't know what you're capable of accomplishing until you try it. Um, and, I, and I'm typically a, a fairly pessimistic person and I don't always take that advice in my own life but in this one instance uh, that kind of platitude right you know swing for the fences be ambition it actually kind of turned out and it surprised me uh, the novel turned out better than I thought it would well that's good you know I say that you know you know with you know a certain amount of humility I, I'm not saying it's a great novel but it was better than I thought I could do an author should say that yeah yeah I mean that's great. Yeah, th this is quite a process. This, this is quite, took quite a few years, and yeah, and you go through a lot to get to this, and and even going through the characters and going through and creating their voices and what you want them to do and and where you want it to go. So, so going through this whole process at the end of it, um, how do you think this has changed you? Good question. Um, well, um, 
probably a number of different ways. I think that anytime you have an ambitious project that you conceive and then spend a long time working on, and, and, and particularly if you're setting your standards high and you um, execute and accomplish and finish that project, um, there's a certain amount of just like satisfaction there, right? I didn't abandon it. I didn't quit. And that could, that could have easily happened at a number of times in the process. It's not an unfinished novel sitting in my drawer. And I know a number of people who've got unfinished manuscripts sitting in their door. Um, and I've, you know, subsequently I've tried to write other books, start other projects. And I've got a couple, I have two or three uh, projects that just didn't go anywhere after I wrote The Eunuch. And then I realized, oh, it's actually hard to find an idea that has enough legs that you can stick with and finish, right? I finally did find a second project that I've stuck with. But, you know, only after abandoning two or three things, just, you know, where, you know, where the writing's bad, it's going nowhere, right? And so I realized, oh, you know, I don't want to say lightning struck, but there's it, it a certain amount of uh, serendipity, a certain amount of grace that has to happen for, for you able to kind of finish a project because, you know, a lot of things don't succeed, don't work out. Um, so that, that's a lesson I think I took away from that, uh, to, be, to be thankful that I was able to finish that, whatever the quality of the uh, end product is, at least it's done. Charles, were there sections of the book as you're writing that you found more difficult to write outside of the research and just the oh, knowledge yeah. that have? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Just things you like, oh, I don't know if the readers will like this or tell me about tell me about those pieces. Oh my so, god, yeah. The middle of a novel is impossible. Um I had a writing teacher who said that, you know, know what your end's gonna be. Right? Figure out what the uh, conclusion, the last chapter, last dramatic event, whatever, and then write towards that. So I, I had an idea of how the novel was going to end, or at least I, I had an idea. I, I conceived of the novel, you know, like there's three acts to it, and I knew how act two was going to end, and I knew that the third act was going to be 50 to 100 pages. I wasn't worried about that. But it was getting through that second act, the big, fat middle. It was a nightmare. Um, I, you know, I, I, would, you, you, I took wrong turns, went down blind alleys with the story, couldn't quite figure it out. And I, I probably spent four years uh, mired in the middle of that book, maybe longer. Um, and, and it wasn't until I kind of cracked that second section that, ah, oh, finally. Um, and then I wrote the, the last hundred pages really, really quickly. I wrote the beginning pretty quickly. I wrote the end pretty quickly. But that middle uh, was very difficult for me. Why do you think that was? Well, because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really figure it out the story, um, all the things that happened. I mean, it, the novel has like 22, 23 chapters. Each chapter is anywhere from 10 to 20 pages long, right? And so the tr what's difficult is is getting the chapters to hold together. So so it's one thing to write a, a paragraph, a paragraph, you know. The way I tell my students is you have to learn how to write a sentence all the things that go in a good sentence. And then you have to learn how to write a paragraph. A paragraph is made up of a bunch of really good sentences. A chapter is made up of a bunch of really good paragraphs. And the first time you finish a chapter, it's like, oh, my God, miracle. I got something that has a beginning and a middle and an end. It's working. It's good. I think it's pretty good, right? But the real difficulty is once you have a bunch of chapters, getting them to fit together. That's like madness. And the only kind of analog I could I, 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 to this is when you hear about Musicians, when they are trying to create an album, and they've got, you know, 10 to 18 songs, 10 to 20 songs. Well, which songs are going to go in there, and what order do they go to try to kind of create this kind of holistic, coherent vision, right? 
And I, I just remember the story from Guns N' Roses on like um, their album, Chinese Democracy. You know, notoriously, it took like 30 years for that thing to come out because Axel couldn't figure out which songs to go on the album and in what order. He was constantly moving around and playing with them and was never satisfied. There's something like that, at least for me, in writing that middle section. I had all these parts and I couldn't make them work together. Um, maybe it was just, you know, I'm a slow learner, or maybe it's my, it was my first book. But for whatever the reason, it was that was the challenge for me. Well, thinking from the point of view of the reader, was there some content that you put in there and you went, yeah, they're going to like this, or, ooh, I'm going to put that in? That's, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you, did you cancel yourself? By, as you're I never canceled. Just, or, or, just say, or just say, screw it, I'm putting this in here? Yeah, sure, right. Um, you know, when I was writing this, you know, I spent, you know, uh, the decade of the 90s in an English graduate school, right? So all the kind of politics that are on our landscape right now, all the kind of various progressive politics on our landscape, now, we're there in seed, all of it, right? So I was aware of the various ideological toes that I could step on, particularly when I was writing about sex and power and gender, right? It's a minefield, right? And so one of the decisions I made was, oh, I'm going to tell the, I'm going I'm to write, I'm a man, right? I'm a heterosexual man. And, uh, you know, for my generation to write about sexuality in women, well, it's now seen as problematic. I knew that I couldn't. Uh, a compete with the so-called big swinging literary dicks of my father's generation, you know, the Philip Roths and the Norman Mailers, right? There's no way I could compete with those guys, right? Uh, 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 my, my, the work would be viewed as problematic and sexist and et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I was aware of that particular minefield. So I said, well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do an end around that. I'm going to create a, this kind of this this uh, this being who's in the middle between male and female, and he's seemingly innocent of the, you know, heteronormative dynamics that my fellow graduate students would deplore. And so that was one of my solutions, right? But I, you know, but on the other hand, so you know, you know, he, you know, even though he's been, even though his sexual organs have been eliminated. Eliminated, he's still full of desire. And so when he's in the harem and he's around all these young, nubile, beautiful women, he feels a tremendous amount of desire, but he can't act upon it. Right. So in many ways, the novel is about thwarted male desire. Uh, but I, I masked it. I masked that, that, that potentially um, politically hot topic through the lens of this uh, eunuch slave scribe. So there was that. And there, and there were a couple of, of chapters that, that have some real kind of cringy violence in them. And I knew that some readers wouldn't like that. But I basically said, screw it. I, I like it. I'm going to put it in there. I was going to ask about that, like the violence or the, you know, there's tension on each page, right? So, yeah. so But you just kind of went with what would fit the story more than... Yeah, well, part of it was, is um, you know, I was a big fan of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And... Um, I, you know, I would challenge any reader to find a, a gorier and more violent book than that. Maybe the Iliad, right? It's a book about war, um, and it's tremendously poetic and profound. But there's, you know, there's a, there's like there's an atrocity, a war crime, almost on every other page. And um, you know, many readers can't read Blood Meridian because of their own sensitivities to violence, right? And which I understand. You know, and I, I'm sympathetic to that. And I certainly didn't write Blood Meridian, but there are moments in the novel that are are very violent and dangerous. For example, at one one point in the novel, uh, a minister in the king's court who's fall who's fallen out of favor politically is skinned alive. 
before a live audience. This is something that these guys did in Mesopotamia. They were they were brutal in their their war methods. Uh, once once they would take it, once they would uh, defeat an army or raise a city, they'd go in there and they would skin the, uh, their enemy. Uh, soldiers alive, and often they would nail the skins to trees or walls as a testament to the power and might of the king. So you've got, you know, you, these are war crimes, atrocities, this kind of barbarism, this brutality, right? And so, you know, to be accurate to that world, I, I wanted to portray some of that. But, you know, so I did. Were you cautious on how how you detailed it? But, like, there's one thing of talking about skinning someone alive and yeah, right. nailing it, but there's also, you can kind of get into the... Uh, the details. The smells and the, and the, yeah, and the right. you know, the, 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 do, do, you, do you kind of subtly do that, or did you get right into that, too? First draft, I went for it. First, second draft, told everything, all of it. Showed the actual cutting of the flesh, the peeling of the flesh, Showed the shuddering and gas of the victim. Talked about the blood, the smell. Uh, eventually, this, this guy gets disemboweled, and then you, you smell the urine and the feces. I did all of that. And my wife, who was my first reader, was so repulsed by that. And then, and then when I gave it to my, uh, my publisher and editor, he just says, no way, there's no way you can do that. And so I cut, I cut all that stuff back, pulled a lot of it out. Right. And, uh, you know, kept as much as I could keep in that would satisfy uh, my wife. Although I don't think my wife was ever satisfied with it. Uh, but my publisher allowed it. Uh, I took their advice on that. But. Well, you could have had an X version, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, I wanted to keep it in there. But, you know, I don't know. His wife is now heavily armed. Sleeps <laughs> with one eye open. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's one example. But there are others. You know, because, you know, there's also how to deal with how to portray sex in a way. It's a comic novel. So I was always having to uh, to do it through that satirical eye. Um, you know, it is Babylon, after all. And Babylon, as an archetype, is, you know, is a center of unbridled desire and lust and orgies. And, right, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's an image of, of decadence. And so, um, you know, I had, to, I had to tackle that that subject as well and try to find a way to handle it and, you know, and not make too much of a fool of myself. So there was a challenge in that for sure. Well, let's go with that. Uh, you've gone from skinning someone alive to comic novel. Tell me, how did you portray <laughs> the – why a comic novel and how did you portray the comic elements of it inside this book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so by comic, I mean in a very broad sense – it, it, it's dark comedy. It's black comedy. Uh, you know, something on the order of the television show Veep, right? Uh, uh, what's his name? Aranucci, who wrote about the Washington politics. And it's dark and absurd, and most of the characters are unlikable. Uh, you know, in my in my youth, in early middle age, I liked black comedy, both uh, in film but also in literature. So, um, there, there, so there, there was that aspect of it. Um, it's not. It's not like I wasn't writing, um, you know, P.G. Woodhouse kind of ha 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 funny. Um, so there's a there's more of a darker element to it, and then um, and it's not just all. I wanted to have a, a number of different uh, narrative or emotional tones to it. So it's not all comedy. It's, I would say it's more of a comic tragedy, and there are moments of seriousness there and earnestness within the novel. It's not at all just this kind of scathing mockery of the situation. I think that was one of the things, one of the areas in which I would, to use the word I don't like to use too much, it's an area that I grew in as a writer, 
when I first started out writing, I just wanted to do pure satire, pure comedy, kind of keep that distance emotionally from the material. But as I was writing the the eunuch, uh, the original black comedy and satire broadened out and became more three dimensional. Um, and, and so um, there there are moments of of earnestness there, uh, and, and maybe even lyricism, and, and certainly moments of tragedy. So there's more than one tone to it. But overall, uh, uh, I would characterize the book as a comedy, a dark comedy, but still a comedy. So it's more about, you you know, the timing of the humor has to be just right in a case like that. Yeah, you have to know when to deploy it and when not to. And I relied on the and, and on my readers to do that. So as I was writing the novel, I had two or three readers that I trusted that were willing to take looks at chapters or certain sections and then give me honest feedback. And so um, I, li- I listened to what they have had to say. And at one point, there was just too much satire, too much kind of, you know, comic negativity to it. And, uh, and th- this was the, the reader, this is the reader that eventually became my editor and publisher. He says, you know, you need, you need to move beyond that. You, I, I'm happy to read 70 pages of this, but no one wants to read 200 or 300 pages with this kind of attitude. Uh, that was maybe some of the best advice that I got. And so then I began to kind of broaden, expand the scope of my uh, narrative palette, so to speak. Right, right. Story of my life. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, what what is your influences um, that surround you in, in not just other books, but just in general? Do you have certain things you draw off of uh, in life? Other than books? Yeah, other than books. Or you can use books, too, but if, if that's all there is. But... I was just wondering if there's other things as well. Well, you know, I would say that the primary influences are certainly in books and not just limited to literature, not just limited to other novels. There was a book written um, in the 17th century, uh, published in 1630, called The Anatomy of Melancholy by Robert Burton. It's the, it's the first kind of in-depth study of what we would call depression. That's about, you know, 1,500 pages long. And uh, I, I certainly have not read the whole thing, but I read chunks of that, and I found that really interesting. Uh, some of the language I borrowed and stole from that. Um, I um, I was influenced by Shakespeare. I was teaching I was teaching Homer and Shakespeare at the time that I wrote the book, reading uh, the the great tragedies, the four great tragedies, and and the Iliad, and and that certainly had an influence on me. Some of the kind of the the, the larger the thing about Shakespeare and Homer, they, they were actually philosophical writers. There's a, tremendous, there's a lot of metaphysics and epistemology and ethics in their work. And I was a philosophy undergraduate. And so um, I, I was influenced in how these writers dealt with those philosophical topics, like the problem of evil, problem of pain. Um, right? Homer, of course, war and power, the role that resentment and anger, that resentment and anger can play in an individual's life. Um, the Iliad is all about the anger of Achilles, the rage of Achilles. And one of the things I've discovered as I've gotten older, it's very easy to become angrier as you get older. Yeah, it's more fun, too. Yeah, it's more fun. There's an adrenaline there, right? And, of course, our, our, our so much of our media uh, landscape runs on the gasoline of political indignation, left and right, center. Um, and um, And so the narrator of my novel has a tremendous amount of rage at his condition, right? He was enslaved and then castrated by this imperial empire, right, and forced to live a life of subservience. Uh, and uh, But he has to repress all that rage and mask it and hide it. And so I was interested in 
the role that plays and how he presents himself to the audience. Because he's full of all this rage and resentment, but he doesn't want to appear that way. And, and a lot of it is not even aware of. So I was, I was looking for a way to kind of talk about that, that resentment, that rage, that impotence that he feels. And his impotence is not just sexual, it's economic and political and, and, and also within the larger social hierarchy. And so I was very much interested in exploring those issues and themes. And those are themes like from my own life, of course, and, and, and then from what I see around me, what I've observed around me. Yeah, marriage. You've got marriage. You've got work, right? right. Your, prof your so-called profession or my so-called profession, which is tremendously hierarchical and full of status and these power plays. Wow. But it, 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 overall theme, it's, it's still kind of – how would you consider it, a positive book or uh, – yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so that's <laughs> I would say there's a certain amount of pessimism to the book, but there's but there's humor in the pessimism. Um, uh, hopefully, there's art in the pessimism, right? And I think anytime that you have art and laughter, that's positive. I'll write that one down. So the the content or the theme might be negative, but the experience of the reader. I mean, I want the reader to feel delight and pleasure, right, in the reading of some of these darker and more pessimistic themes, right? And that, that, and if I, if I did my job well and succeeded, hopefully the reader will feel, feel delight and pleasure. And, and, and to me, that's positive. It's almost like laughing at uh, the uh, absurdity of life, of the things we go through. You have to laugh or you will despair and cry, right? Cry and despair, right? And there's plenty of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, it's, 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 it's an attempt. You can call it cope. Right, right, a form of cope. Yeah, it's a way of getting through, you know. Yeah, right, right. Consolation. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Um, the, the whole the whole project. So, where do you, how do you see following yourself with something after this? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking that question. Yeah, I, I eventually did find another idea for a book, another topic, and it's not entirely unrelated. Um, I've spent the last 20 years teaching at a community college in Snohomish County, which is just north of King County and where Seattle is. And most of my students I would characterize as, I got out of the middle, kind of upper middle class bubble of Seattle. And most of my students are first generation college students. Many of them are working class or lower middle class. Um, and something that I noticed about my students, and the men in particular, that there was a certain kind of melancholy or listlessness or lack of engagement, particularly amongst the young men. And I was, I was trying to figure out, well, where are they coming from? Because, because I'm trying to teach them um, to uh, enjoy the humanities and, you know, read poetry and novels and look at paintings and find some connection with art. And I was trying to figure out, like, where are these guys coming from? And so I started to research some of the darker corners of the internet and I came upon an image board that has you know has been in, in and out of uh, uh, the media over the last couple of years and that image board is called 4chan and it's where mostly young men many of them who identify themselves as incels kind of uh, post and talk about their life situation as it were um, and so I spent about three or four years kind of researching it on that image board, I'd say 2015 to 2018, 2019. And during those days, there was a certain, the, the guys who came on there, even though they would post about some of the most deplorable things, for example, they would celebrate mass shooters. I, I once found a thread 
where these guys were uh, comparing videos. They were comparing exe execution videos. These are real execution videos of um, um, ISIS in the Middle East, in Iraq, formerly Iraq, and various Mexican cartels. And they would get into these discussions. Who's more badass, ISIS or a Mexican cartel? And they would compare these videos. Now, I never watched the videos. I wouldn't click on something like that. But I was fascinated that this, was, that this conversation was going on amongst teenagers, amongst young 20-something, right? And I don't have any children, but I would be horrified to have my sons on this kind of, kind of thing. And I know a number of my students that are at least aware of 4Channel if they're not on it. And so I wanted to write a novel from the, uh, from the point of view of one of these 4chan posters. And part of the attraction of that is that they write in this kind of Internet language, a memified language, taken mostly out of urban dictionary. They made, they made up their own kind of idiolect dialect, kind of subcultural dialect. And, and, that, and, that, and that language has is, is now pervaded much of the mainstream. And so there was this kind of happy marriage between the language and this kind of nihilistic world that these guys inhabit. And so I thought there might be something there for a novel. I wanted to do my version of Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange. Well, certainly, certainly, certainly. I've had I've had some shows on that uh, subject, and of course, oh wow. Well, they're not they're not allowed to. Uh, it's hard to get them posted because most platforms will ban it. Anything to do yeah, anything to do right. with it, even YouTube, like all, anything to do with 4chan or 8chan or any of that. Yeah, no, I mean it's the kind of the heart of darkness, right? It's perceived as the heart of darkness. Um, and, you know, and I, while I don't agree uh, with much of their politics, I sympathize with these guys, young, young men. There's a crisis of masculinity, uh, young mas masculinity in, uh, in America right now, or at least I see it amongst my students, right? Um, and there's a lot of real despair there. Um, and there are, uh, many of these guys are suicidal and see no future for themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to be recognized, you know. We have to I think so. Yeah. Know, I, I, I think it, so. Yeah, it's not it's not a great great feeling knowing that they're watching videos or they're they're into that sort of thing, but it's it still has to be recognized and dealt with. Yeah, this is the world that we've created for them. Yeah. You know, I mean yeah, us as individuals. No, I'm thinking you. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> this is what technology has brought us. It's given us the internet. While there's a tremendous amount of good and power in the internet, it's also <laughs> all sorts of bad stuff there as well. It's had all sorts of consequences that we had no idea would be would happen when it was when it first came online, 1995 or whatever that was. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, amazing. Um, well, listen, um, how do people get a hold of you? If you like people, do, do you like them to interact with you, readers and stuff like that? If you do, you know, you're on social media platforms, website. Let's give give out your details and uh, they can get get a hold of you. Yeah, well, I have a website. It's charleshfisher.com, all one word, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. And then I'm on Twitter also at cfisher2. Well, fantastic. Of course, now we'll have that up on our website so people can find you if they can't remember it, and it'll be easily done. So, you know, uh, it's been a great conversation. Enjoyed having you here. Of course, the book is called The Eunuch, and our guest the author of that book, Charles H. Fisher. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Al. I certainly enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. 
This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.